Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast where we are exploring practical insight for social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry, and on today's show, I'm very excited to talk with my friend, Alicia T. Crosby. Alicia is a justice educator, an activist, and she describes herself as a reluctant minister whose work addresses the spiritual, systemic, and interpersonal harm that people experience. Alicia is one of my very, very, very good friends, and she's actually going to be joining me on future shows as my co-host. And so I thought it would be really great for you to just get to know her. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Alicia. So I thought of Alicia because I know that she is one of the friends that I can call when I'm reading something about social change and I find something that is really interesting or even if I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around it, like she's someone that I can invite into that as a conversation partner. And so <laughs> when I thought of, you know, who who would I like to co-host with me? I thought of Alicia and I asked her and I was actually a little surprised that she said that she said, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so Alicia, why don't you, I actually never asked you this before, but what, what drew you to say yes to this project? Cause we even talked about doing other things together yeah. and we didn't. Yeah. Like, this is the one that you finally said, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, like, so, I mean, I just think it's like the right person asking at the right time. So like I, I've known for a while that I wanted to, to do podcasting. Right. So I'm really funny in that I don't actually listen to podcasts all that often mm-hmm. um, because it's just like how I engage information. Right. Like people hearing yeah. people talk at me. is just kind of like, ah, um, with the exception of the read, the read <laughs> is everything. Um, <laughs> shout out to Crystal and Kid Fury, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like I knew that I wanted to 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 do podcasting and I wanted to have conversations with people about social change and about how they were engaging things in the world, and so I started developing a podcast of my own like sometime earlier in the year. But um, I've had a lot of life transition go down in the last year, year and a half, and. I wasn't able to just get my own show off the ground. So it's something that's definitely still in development. But like, I've been asked by folks mm-hmm. for a while, like, oh, do you podcast or will you podcast with me? And I have said no. Um, but I guess <laughs> the, thing that, <laughs> the thing that made me say yes to you, Dre, um, is that I too enjoy like these conversations that we have. I mean, like y'all don't understand, like when Andre and I get on the phone, like we nerd out and it's glorious. <laughs> um, but it, it it made me think about, like, our conversations made me think about um, what it means for people to come together and having, you know, dialogues. And, like, when those dialogues become, like, public dialogues. And so I felt like, you know, this was an opportunity for that, for the magic yeah. that we share, like, in these conversations that happen behind closed doors that no one else hears about. Um, podcasting together seemed like an opportunity to help catalyze thought in others yeah. in the ways that we we experience. Like, so yeah, basically yeah. I wanted folks to experience a bit of our like magic together. Um, yeah. Because I know that like, I've been so stretched and grown by the types of conversations that we've had over these last few years. Um, 
yeah, and I just want folks to experience that so they could question the things that we question. Um, because I think it's impossible to like to talk to the two of us for a very long time and walk away wondering some things about your life and your orientation yeah. to the world and how it is that you engage folks because because of the questions that we ask of ourselves. Yeah, I love like one thing that I appreciate about the conversation that we conversations that we've had is that I feel like you come at the conversation about social change from a bit of a different angle than I do. And it really, it really enriches it for me, you know, because a part, and also because of a part of your experience, like as like an executive director and all these kinds of things and a facilitator, like there, there are some things on like the, the interpersonal level, the way that people interact with one another, the ways that people create spaces of harm or healing or safety or courage or, or whatever that, you know, are just not at the forefront of my mind. <laughs> you know? um, and I just really appreciated talking with you about that. And so I I know that a lot of folks that, who are listening, this may be their first time um, hearing about you and your work. So could you tell us about your experience with the Center for Inclusion and just kind of where you come from and how you enter this space about the with the conversation about social change? Yeah, okay. So um, in order to do that, I actually have to go way back, back into time. Way back into time. Yeah, so um, I think for me, like considering what social change could and should be um, has definitely been... It definitely was something that was like catalyzed, like thought wise for me, like when I lived in New York. So I'm a native New Yorker. Um, I'm living in Chicago now. I'm actually about to move um, (laughs) to North Carolina um, to start um, seminary at Duke Divinity School. And so I remember being in New York and first working as a foster care um, caseworker, and then later on as an educational advocate with the civil rights organization. And seeing how systems impacted people, um, and that being the thing that made me like want to like investigate and interrogate like what social change could and should be, um, mm-hmm. because I saw systems that said like on paper that they were doing X, Y, and Z for people, but in actuality were like impacting their lives in very different, um, and I think mm-hmm. sometimes in very de- detrimental ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that definitely started like way back when, like in my casework experience and and in my educational advocacy. And that actually led me to Chicago. And so like in me coming to Chicago where I came to um, get a master's in social justice, because apparently that's a thing that you can do these days. Um, (laughs) More on that later. Um, I, halfway through my program, um, did a project um, around um, religion and LGBTQ equity, um, specifically looking at youth, um, and wondered how um, wondered how families and religious entities could be more affirming and caring and supportive and celebratory of LGBTQ youth because. I was seeing like patterns of exclusion um, that were having like really like super real like impacts on people's lives. 
and wanted right. to figure out like how we could like kind of you know change the time that way. Anyways, I share all that to say is that project led to me actually started a nonprofit called Center for Inclusivity. And so I started that project with um, a friend and a colleague, Jason Bilbrey, in 2015. Um, it's actually really interesting to speak about now because we've actually like phased out operations. And, you know, no one thinks about like the end of a thing when they started. But, you know, we started off wanting to have and cultivate forms for public dialogue. And that those public, those public dialogues led to us um, really considering and leading others and considering like how we could cultivate spaces that prioritizes the exploration of identity, intersectional equity and inclusivity. Um, and so that's what I've done over the last like, you know, four plus years of my life and what I'm going to continue on doing, um, albeit as a consultant. Um, so yeah. let me ask you a question. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to finish because. So, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. You started a center, started a nonprofit. Yeah. And now you're going to seminary. Yeah. <laughs> why, why would you do that? Yeah. So, <laughs> why? So, running a nonprofit is really hard, y'all. It is. Um, I don't, well, I was going to say, I don't know, which isn't the truth. I just needed a little bit more time to like, to think of my answer. So the reason why I do this now is like, so even before like I started the center, before I moved to Chicago, before I started my first master's, cause this will be master's number two because hashtag overachiever. Um, <laughs> I, um, the reason why I engage in that project that like led to me starting like the center in the first place is like, I'm really interested in, um, in harm and trauma and specifically like religious violence and trauma. And so, like, there are a lot of folks out there approaching this in different ways. Um, but, like, I remember, like, years ago, like, sitting with, like, a, a scripture verse. Don't ask me what it is right now. I'm still the worst person at remembering, like, exact locations of, like, things. <laughs> um, but I remember, like, considering what it meant when it is us, when it is people of faith and belief who wreck themselves against the knowledge of God. It's, like, when we're called to, like, level those things, we'll be ourselves serve as barriers to God, like through our action or inaction in some cases. Um, I wanted to consider like, I wanted to consider that, right? So that's actually what drew me to, to grad school in the first place and like why social justice is a thing that I um, explored. But the reason why I'm going back now is like to deepen that work. And so I wanna look at um, how religious violence and trauma connects to the socio-political function um, in our social context, meaning specifically within the United States of America, um, and how people's deeply held religiosity, um, and I will nuance that by saying toxic religiosities, right? Like, so what it means when like evangelical Christians um, work to influence policy and um, practice to fit their morality at the expense of others, because like there is a very real impact um, in the lives of a lot of people um, because of these deeply held toxic religiosities. And mm -hmm. I wanna study that and talk about it more and help people consider like, what does it mean to live into your faith practice in a way that's non injurious to other people? Um, yeah. Because there's a lot of violence I think that's perpetuated in the world right now at the hands of people who, some of which may be well-meaning, 
Um, but others who definitely have like nefarious intentions and are using religion as a means of controlling others. So that's why now, and that's why, um, why a little bit of why I shifted out of the nonprofit sphere. Um, but I'm definitely still continuing on in the work that I did around identity, intersectional equity and inclusivity, albeit like, again, as a consultant and I, I facilitate, I write, I speak, um, but I'm doing that in a sort of like freelance, um, space in order to free up my energies to both, you know, engage more deeply in this study and even like engage maybe more deeply, like in my consultancy work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I ask about seminary because I feel like sometimes just even involving religion in the conversations, like for some people, it feels like you're, you're like bridging a chasm, right? Like, yeah. or you're breaking down a partition because we have these very compartmentalized ways of doing the world. Like, I remember when I used to be a pastor, <clears throat> when I was a pastor in New York City, uh, someone came to my church. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the senior pastor. I was the worship director, but I was preaching that day. And he sent me a Facebook message later on. and was like, does this mean that you're not going to be making music anymore? And I was like, oh. I am going to say this to him, but it was a, such a strange question to me at the time because I'm thinking like, you do know that I have been preaching this entire time. You just didn't know about it. Um, But I I say that to say like how compartmentalized, you know, it can, these conversations can be. And now, you know, being on outside of the ministry and even having a very different relationship to Christian faith than I used to have. um, I actually wanted to kind of leave this whole part out of the conversation, right? Like, really? being in religious spaces and and having like even spiritual conversation. Like there was a part of me that really did, but you know, it like kind of brought me back to even being open to spirituality at all. Mm-hmm. And to even, you know, sometimes I say I'm, I'm barely Christian. Like I'm just enough. Oh, I thought <laughs> we're Christian-ish. That yeah, felt true. Yeah. Somewhere, you know, somewhere in there. I like Jesus. Um, Yes, yes, very, I like Jesus very much. So what, what kind of brought me back to Christian faith was actually studying nonviolent struggle. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is kind of crazy, you know, because I just kept running into not just Jesus. I kept running into religious people and religious traditions in every story of revolution that I read mm. and running into clergy people and how people are in using their faith as kind of a technology to engage systems of power, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just been really fascinating to me. And so, and even and even in those who are not, you know, Christian or Muslim or some like um, of those major world religions, I remember reading Michael White's The End of Protest and one of his examples, so he gave four different types of activists. And one of them was the theurgist, and I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it's T-H-E-U-R-G-I-S-T. So I'm going to say theurgist. And the example that he gave was of an indigenous man who made some kind of prophecy about rain or something. It was very (laughs) Elijah-esque, you know, but he made some kind of prophecy about rain and it came true and it mobilized all these people. (laughs) And I was like, 
okay, well, if the co-founder of a worldwide movement against economic equality is at least open to spirituality, then maybe I should reconsider my position about being a materialist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that, I think it's, it's interesting that you use, um, like you brought up the concept of using like religion as a technology, right? Or spirituality mm-hmm. as a technology, because like, that's a thing. It's a thing in real life. I mean, spirituality in its most like basic form is just people's meaning making of the world. And, you know, when I think about like religion, um, it's like, it's taking, you know, rituals and like, text and you know icons and like things to help like filter some of that meaning making and I think it's so important I'm I'm actually really glad that like you're open to like bringing like spiritual identity into conversation because at the end of the into like these conversations because at the end of the day everything is connected it's like so we could silo and pretend like these things aren't influenced in x y and z or mm-hmm. have some like really like hard and dynamic conversations about how people's deeply held beliefs do influence you know social change and policy making and all these other things because it's actually what's happening and when we leave i think mm-hmm. religion and spirituality um and, and identities related to that out of the mix, like we're missing a huge part of the conversation. And I think an integral part of the conversation because these things are actually at the root of a lot of people's belief systems. And like, and that's what's causing them to act or to abstain from acting. Well, yeah, there definitely is something like deeper than just the structures and just the policies. Mm-hmm of that like there is something about you know the soul you know if you want to call it that you know that has to be addressed in all of this Mm -hmm. and uh, seeing a lot of people you know embrace that and you know and this might just be this might just be the interaction between like you know a, a world that has kind of been dominated by white thought and I could be wrong about that, but this is my hypothesis right now, in the moment, just right now. I've had, I don't even, I've never really articulated this, mm-hmm. but there have been times when I had felt silly for being open to spirituality. Mm-hmm. And in some ways even felt like there might be a kind of social pressure to feel that way, you know? Mm-hmm. But then when I listen to people like Cornel West and even Michelle Alexander, you know, I remember when she joined when she joined Union as a visiting uh, professor, I remember that moment when Michelle Alexander decided that she needed to be teaching at a seminary. I also perked up again and was like, okay, that's interesting. I should pay attention to the fact that this person who wrote this, you know, definitive text about the mass incarceration system says, and and is a law expert, Mm -hmm. says this can only be fixed by addressing the laws and policies. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and I, I wonder if like some of that social pressure that you named like actually comes from the ways that we've seen religion be weaponized in the world. Um, Absolutely. Like, I mean, we've seen people and more specifically, it's a particular archetypes of people um, use religion as a, as a battering ram instead mm-hmm. of as a bomb. And so I think that yeah. there are a lot of folks who are out here who felt 
and who feel that they've had to abdicate not just like religion, but their sense of like self is spiritual beings because the language of religion and spirituality have been co-opted by these folks. And it's just like, you know what? Nah, like that's how I feel. Like, I mean, at one point I was just like, at, at one point, you know, I was in a place where I was willing to like give this up, but I was like, you know what? Absolutely not. It's like, because when, my family, right, when my ancestors, like, didn't have anything else to give, they gave me faith. They gave me belief. And wow. even if my belief system isn't structured in the same ways that their, theirs was or is, um, depending on how, like, you, you see things, at the end of the day, like, that's a part of my heritage and my legacy. And I'll be damned if I'm going to give it up to someone just because they've used what is meant to be healing, what is meant to be restorative, what is meant to to give and to create and be life-giving as a tool of death. Like I refuse. And so, so yeah, like, I think that's why not only, you know, having conversations about social change, but social change at the intersection of like spiritual identity. And even like this work that I'm about to engage in, like through like my, my 10 years as seminarian is so important to me because it's about people taking back what was stolen from them. It's like, we can talk about like, you know, the material Right. I think a lot of conversations around um, around equity tend to focus on the material. But there's something to be said about like taking back what's spiritually ours. And and I'm committed to that conversation and addressing the violence and trauma that folks have have had at the hand of their oppressors, many of which who are Protestants, white Protestants. (laughs) White Protestant men. We can keep going. Who are wealthy. (laughs) (laughs) Let me stop. I'm gonna be good. No, I'm not. (laughs) No, yeah, I mean no, we gotta be honest. And you know, I I'm gonna be really I'm gonna be really candid about this. Like I have a lot of I have a lot of stuff that I'm working through when it comes to my own spiritual identity and faith and all that kind of stuff. And I, I hear these kind of, I hear these kind of two parties, right? There's one party that says, you know, when the colonizers came to Africa, you know, they, you know, they, they took, they took the land and gave us the Bible or something like that. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's the white man. Um, and then I hear the other side of people like Michael McBride, you know, who I talked to and he was like, man, don't let these white people take Jesus from you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, even even that can be, I think, a, an, an injustice in a way to say that <clears throat> I can't relate to the faith that has actually maybe enriched my life. You know, in my case, it has. You know, I've had some, mm-hmm. I had some really great experiences as a Christian. Um, and to say, well, because of white supremacy, I can no longer have that. And I see both sides of that thing. But you know, I had an experience the other day in DC on this long work trip we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I went to the African American Museum. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And I gotta tell you, I mean, I get I totally understand those people who say, listen, too much violence has been done in the name of white Jesus for me to approach being a Christian. Mm-hmm. I I get that. I hear that. It resonates with me. But, you t- but I'll tell you what else resonates with me is walking through that museum and seeing Nat Turner's Bible mm-hmm. and seeing Harriet Tubman's hymnal mm-hmm. and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Like it just, 
it really spoke to me in a very deep way to see like this also has given like you said our ancestors has given so much inspiration for them to pursue a just world and i don't want to i don't want to dismiss that either mhm yeah yeah i mean that resonates i mean i think you know there's so much of the museum i've yet to see because that place is massive and beautiful but yeah. I mean, I think about the pride that I had felt like looking at contemporary movement, like an evidence of that in that space. And not even just like seeing like people of faith and of belief um, working hard for social change, but it was like actually a thing of um, of pride to see friends and colleagues there, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. folks who mm-hmm. were like so dedicated to this work that like, you know, it felt good to see like, you know, it's like even history is having to bear witness to the ways that like your faithfulness right. has moved you to work for equity for all. Like yeah. that was, that was like a really like dope feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question. Yeah. What is, what is like a big question about social change that you've been pondering lately? Mm. So <laughs> it's actually funny <laughs> that you, you asked this. It's like, cause this is actually something that's very present in my lot, my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's maybe like, what does healing look like? Mm-hmm. It's like, so we talk about change, right? Like we get all the things that we want, mm-hmm. then what? Like, that's the question that I've been, been asking mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, if all things are made right, if like, if people have access to the same, you know, power and resources, there are wounds, like deep, profound wounds that have been left by like generations of violence that that we're, we all bear, right? Like those who've experienced marginalization and those who have acted as oppressors. Right. Like what does it look like when we're healed? And when we're well, um, yeah, I think that that's a question that I've really been like sitting with over these last few days, and I'm I'm working on this um this project that's making it come up more for me, um, mm-hmm. because I just think if we're not focused on wellness as a part of these conversations, um, that even if we see certain types of violence is uh, stopped we're going to see others emerge because people are going to still be acting out of their wounding and they're going to be acting out of those places of their own trauma um right yeah so i guess like you know what does it look like when we were like really well and i mean we might never get to that place um Uh, the idealist in me that like that even like bothers to like question that thing i tend to be thinking about okay, like the nuts and bolts of how do we remove this power from this, you know, Mm. from this system or this agent or whatever, right? And I have to do a lot of work to come back to what is the relational infrastructure required for us to be able to do this? Mm. (laughs) 
Yeah. You have experience. You have experience thinking that way and and moving in that way. And so that's what I'm actually really excited about too in our conversations is for you to already just be like, okay, but what about this? <laughs> like one, I think the like the. <laughs> In my in my fancier titles, I, I go by equity consultant and justice educator. Really, what I am is a mm-hmm. question asker. <laughs> That's like mm-hmm. what I do. I just ask questions, yeah, and mm-hmm. and, and, and encourage other pe- people to ask questions because I think that like that sense of inquiry and that sense of like wonder um, is what helps build those relational bonds that we're talking about is so critical um, in social change and justice work. Yeah. If you stay curious about people and about systems, then you'll find out the truth of the, about them, good, bad, and indifferent. So, like, you hmm. see the, the places, like, where social change is needed, question, ask, and we'll reveal some things to you. And, mm-hmm. and in order to, like, strengthen the connection that you have between you and an entity or you and a person or whatever... Like asking questions gets you to that end too. And so that's really all I, I do. And honestly, all I want to do is I can continue to ask questions myself and encourage people to do the same. Yeah. Question everything, y'all. Question everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's goodness that comes out of that. Like questions give us the space to create. No, it doesn't have to be. Oh, doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get in more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of the episode on Patreon. If you want to join the work in our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement, where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace.